Hi, I'm uh, Gavin Giovanoni. I'm a neurologist based in the East End of London. I'm an academic and spend most of my time doing MS uh, research, but also uh, do a lot of clinical management uh, of people with multiple sclerosis. So in this MS Selfie newsletter, I discuss the common problem that faces not only people with the disease, but healthcare professionals is when to decide if somebody is having a, a relapse or not. Uh, this is in response to a patient of mine who recently developed COVID-19 and developed a whole lot of symptoms uh, associated with the temperature he had uh, when he got COVID-19. Um, it brought on numbness and a clumsy left arm as well as dragging of the uh, left foot. Now these symptoms in my recollection of this particular patient were probably recurrence of old symptoms he had from previous relapses. However, he was quite adamant that his uh, clumsy left arm uh, was new. Anyway, his wife um, in desperation had Googled his symptoms and uh, Dr. Google in terms of the search engine it came up uh, with the suggestion that he may be having a stroke. Um, I don't think he is having a stroke because uh, 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 the evolution of his symptoms are quite gradual. Stroke tends to come on very, very suddenly. Uh, and I suspect maybe his symptoms are related to the fact that he's got an active infection uh, with a temperature. Um, anyway, you will also probably had experiences yourself uh, and asked yourself the question, am I having a relapse or not? And I think uh, our clinical definition uh, of a relapse is very difficult to apply to individual patients because to have a relapse, we have this very strict definition that is really evolved out of clinical trials where we try and define what a, a clinical relapse is in, in the trial context. And this is the appearance of new symptoms uh, or the return of old symptoms for a period of 24 hours or more. So it's got to persist. Uh, in the absence of a change in core body temperature or an infection. And the definition here is that it's got to persist. Uh, even in trials, however, uh, sometimes we actually need to have objective signs. So when we do the neurological examination, we've got to show new signs or fixed signs and your disability score, your so-called EDSS, which stands for the Expanded Disability Status Score, has to actually increase or the so-called functional systems, the neurological symptoms um, that are related to the EDSS have to change either by two points, which is quite a big shift, or in two functional systems by at least one point. And that's why when we do clinical trials, we have two types of relapses. We have relapses that are so-called protocol defined, defined by the trial protocol, and fulfill that criteria of a change in EDSS or functional systems. And then we have non-protocol defined relapses where the clinician or the treating physician feels the patient's likely to have had a relapse but does not fulfill the definition uh, of the of the protocol. And uh, just to give you an example, one of the trials I was involved in, um, we had a relapse rate that was quite low. It was 0.33 per annum. So it was, you know, in three, only one in three patients had a relapse every year, which is relatively low for trial populations. Um, however, the protocol defined the protocol definition was very, very strict. And when we looked at overall relapses, the relapse rate was actually double that. It was, over, it was, over, it was close to 0.6. Uh, 
So that just shows you that we get rid of a lot of relapses by having these strict definitions. Now, that doesn't say, doesn't tell you that those people um, who don't have a protocol defined relapse are not having a relapse. They're likely to be having a relapse. It's just they don't fulfill these strict definitions that we as trialists or clinicians put in place. And that's why um, um, this definition of a relapse is so difficult to apply in clinical practice because there are lots of symptoms that are clearly related to a relapse that are, are intermittent and therefore wouldn't fulfill the definition of a relapse. Just to give an example, uh, if you get a lesion in your spinal cord, you may get this thing called Lumet's phenomenon. In other words, when you bend your neck, you get shock-like, electric shock-like sensations down your spine and you may get pins and needles and tingling in your limbs. Um, that only comes on when you bend your neck or you flex your neck. And because you don't do that all the time, it's an intermittent symptom, and that really can't, in inverted commas, be classified as a relapse. Similarly, you may get uh, these so-called flexor spasms when your arm goes into spasm. Because it's intermittent, it may not fulfill the definition of persistent. A whole lot of neurologists fulfill that. Sensory symptoms that come and go. And I know from personal experience, when you have people that have a lot of intermittent symptoms and you scan them, say their annual scan, they often have activity on their scan, in other words, have acquired new lesions. So I don't know if we can just dismiss these transient symptoms as not being meaningful for people with the disease. Uh, and a lot of the time, uh, they actually have ha had relapses documented by new lesions or at least activity on MRI scan. I also got a whole collection of patients that I'm collecting over time that uh, um, may have mild intermittent symptoms, but when you examine them, there's no change in the neurological examination, so the EDSS score is completely stable. You do an MRI scan, even the brain and the whole spine, and you don't show any new lesions. Uh, and they almost certainly have relapses, because when we've measured their spinal fluid neurofilament levels, which is a biomarker of damage, so when you damage nerve fibers, be it the axon or the nerve body, and you release the contents, um, that causes the neurofilament levels to go up, and that's an indication of ongoing damage. And so these people have uh, raised levels indicative of a new lesion, and we don't see it clinically on MRI scan. I call those biochemical relapses, and I suspect we'll be using neurofilament levels, either in the spinal fluid or in the peripheral blood, uh, to define relapses in the future. And this is going to be one of the ways we use this particular assay when it becomes established in clinical practice to help us sort out relapses from non-relapses. Um, the, the other thing is our MRI scans are not that good. They only pick up the tip of the tip of the iceberg. So uh, um, they only really detect lesions in white matter that are about three to four millimeters in size or larger. So you could potentially have a very small lesion you know, one millimeter in size, even smaller, in a very critical part of the brain or spinal cord that will cause new symptoms, but we won't pick up that lesion on MRI scan. And also lesions that occur in so-called gray matter, this is the surface of the brain or the deep tissue within the brain, don't get detected using our standard diagnostic MRI scanning technology. So you can definitely have uh, small lesions or lesions in the gray matter that cause new symptoms cause a relapse and we won't see it on MRI scan. So for this reason, uh, we don't have to have a new lesion on MRI scan to make a diagnosis of a, a relapse. So yes, you don't have to have an MRI scan. Now there are reasons for doing MRI scans in people with MS who present with new symptoms. One of the things is if you're worried that this could be a stroke, let's say somebody came on with a rapid onset over a few seconds of a weakness in an arm or a leg and they may be a smoker or have other risk factors for stroke, 
you may want to do a scan to diagnose a stroke rather than an MS relapse. So there are other reasons why people with uh, MS get new symptoms. Similarly, you may want to exclude uh, complication of potential DMTs, for example, progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy or PML, which is an infection. There you want to do an urgent scan to make sure they don't have that complication. So there are reasons for doing an MRI in somebody who has a relapse. A big reason in the UK um, is to get to the next level of therapy. You know, uh, some of these treatments not only require clinical activity, but they also require uh, uh, MRI activity, objective MRI activity to be able to switch therapies. And this is particularly if you want to go to tier two and tier three therapies. So the so people wanting to need to be uh, switched to say oral cladribine, fingolimod, uh, natalizumab, uh, alemtuzumab, having active scans as part of the requirement of the NHS England treatment algorithm to escalate uh, uh, therapies. Now, for the for escalation of treatment, you probably don't need an urgent scan. You can just get a non semi-urgent scan or non-urgent scan, and it can be done in the next few weeks or months because most lesions leave behind a scar, so you'll pick it up. Obviously, for a diagnostic scan to exclude stroke or an infectious complication or a brain tumor or something like that, those will have to be done more urgently, literally within days in days of uh, presentation. So the urgency of doing a scan also changes. Um, do you need a scan or a lesion to treat with steroids? I think not. Um, the decision to use high-dose steroids to treat a relapse has got to be based on the clinical presentation. So I personally try not to use steroids to treat relapses as much as possible. The reason being they've got side effects, and some of these side effects are irreversible and they have quite catastrophic consequences for people with the disease. I mean, the one I worry about the most is a condition called avascular necrosis, where you block the blood vessels, say, to the hip joints, and they develop a, a thrombosed artery, and, the, and that usually ends up with the patient or the person needing to have a hip replacement. And it's not uncommon, you know, I've got a large number of my patients who've had a vascular necrosis of the hip after relatively modest doses of steroids. Um, so please take the steroid uh, treatment uh, very carefully. And there's a whole list of other side effects that come with high-dose steroids. Also, steroids don't really make an enormous difference to relapses. So they don't really affect the final outcome. So if you have or don't have steroids at six months, the level of disability between those two groups in trials has been much the same. What it does do, though, is it speeds up the recovery uh, by about two weeks. So in other words, you recover your function about two weeks earlier. And obviously, if you're very disabled, you know, two weeks can be an important time window. You know, it means getting back to work or getting functional again a lot quicker. So yes, for severe relapses, uh, I think the two-week uh, improvement gap uh, is worth giving. Another indication is pain. A lot of people who have relapses may, for example, develop quite severe pain, and steroids help that, helps that particular problem. Uh, you, you may have had optic neuritis, inflammation in the optic nerve behind the eye. It can be extremely painful, and uh, from experience, when you give steroids, the pain often melts away literally within hours to days of starting it. Similarly, with, type, with certain types of neurologic syndromes, uh, uh, and also, you know, uncomfortable intermittent symptoms like spasms, for example, can respond to steroids. So there are definite reasons where you would want to give steroids, but I think overall 
um, the risk benefit has to be individualized. And uh, we are trying not to use um, hydrosteroids uh, to treat relapses uh, at the moment. Um, obviously, during the COVID-19 pandemic, you'd also want to use steroids, avoid steroids, because it actually immunosuppresses your immune system and we now know that people who had high dose steroids in the last four weeks are at a much higher risk almost six times greater risk of going to intensive care unit and getting ventilated um, if they've had steroids compared to people with multiple sclerosis who haven't had steroids so there are other reasons for trying to uh, avoid steroids so i would urge you to read the full um, uh, newsletter that goes into um, a lot of issues around uh, diagnosing um, uh, relapses and it also covers this condition called pseudo relapses now pseudo relapses is when you have a temperature either from exercise from an infection which we call a pyrexia or it may be just ambient temperature going out in, in the hot weather in summer uh, where your body temperature rises by a small amount uh, it can be just 0.1 or 0.2 degrees of a centigrade um, uh, and it causes what we call temperature-dependent conduction block and brings out old symptoms. And the reason for that is once a pathway has been damaged and it gets remyelinated and recovers function, the conduction through that pathway, the electrical conduction, is never back to normal and becomes sensitive to temperature changes, either an increase or decrease. And if the temperature changes, it can actually block. And then what happens is when it blocks function, you get all... Uh, uh, old symptoms come back and that's one of the biggest challenges we face in clinical practice is sorting out uh, pseudo relapses uh, these con uh, temperature dependent conduction block from uh, um, uh, relapses and I discuss that in a lot of detail um, as part of the uh, a newsletter so uh, I hope you enjoy the newsletter please read it and I would urge you to uh, subscribe to uh, uh, MS Selfie site in other words um, put your email into the system so you get emailed a, a newsletter yourself. If you have any friends or colleagues who you think may uh, like uh, MSL for newsletters, please forward this email uh, to them or forward the link to them so that they can register themselves. Please, it's, all, it's completely free, uh, but I am asking uh, people who can afford to uh, become paid subscribers to do to do that. Uh, I'm trying to raise sufficient money from the site, in other words, make it self-funding. Um, not for myself, but I'm hoping to use the money raised, uh, I am going to use the money raised to employ a part-time medical writer and a part-time web designer to create a companion uh, MS Selfie site called uh, Website. And this particular site is going to become like a textbook of uh, the self-management guidelines around the principles of the MS Selfie. And uh, instead of having to trawl through, you know, thousands or in the future, maybe thousands of uh, newsletters, you'll be able to go to a beautifully curated, indexed, searchable uh, website where you will learn all these things in a structured way. Uh, and so it's basically paying for the... MS Selfie newsletters um, to become curated. And I personally just don't have the bandwidth or time to do that myself. And I'm going to hand it over to uh, the professionals who will have the time and potentially make it um, more uh, readable for people uh, with multiple sclerosis than the way I write. I mean, I probably write a bit too scientifically for the average reader. Uh, if, I, if I do write too scientifically, please don't um, uh, ask questions. The other thing I want to urge you to do is 
tell me your stories. You know, um, I'll try and answer as many questions as I can, but have a conversation with other people with multiple sclerosis on the site. And I am very keen to hear about your own experiences of having relapses diagnosed or dismissed uh, and whether or not you've had pseudo relapses diagnosed uh, in the past. And I'm also very keen to hear about the kind of symptoms you get in relation to temperature sensitivity. Thank you and enjoy.